All right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Mesechet Megillah. This is the 53rd episode of our studies in Mesechet Megillah that has stretched over a number of years. And today, as we continue to study the teachings of our sages on the Psukim, on the verses of the Megillah, we are nearing the end of Daf Tezayin Amad Beis, page 16, side B. So if you're looking in the art scroll version, it would be maybe 16 B, maybe 3 or 4, something like that. If you're looking in the original Vilna print folio pages, we're about halfway through the, that bottom section. And today we are going to, to talk about where credit is due. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about Esther. Talk quite a lot about Esther. And we're going to talk about Mordechai as well. So Esther, is, Esther gets credit. The question is what she's getting credit for. And does she share the credit? And Mordechai doesn't seem to get the credit that he rightfully deserves. I have to tell you that the Gemara says precious little. Mamish, like, like, like a few words. The Gemara literally... It, it says almost nothing, and the Mepharshim, the commentaries on the Gemara, say almost nothing. Other than the Marsha, I found no direction anywhere. So this took a long time to figure out. You know, I'm not that smart, and I had to really break my head. But I, I, I think I figured out Pshat. I think I figured out Pshat, and I, I actually think it's not only informative, but it's actually it's even inspirational. Okay, so with no further ado, where credit is due... Episode 53 of our classes on the Megillah. Hello, everybody here in person. Hello, everybody online. And as they say, let's rock and roll. So let me just tell you where the Gemara is quoting from. In the end of the ninth chapter, we hear about the establishment of the holiday of Purim. In the very last two verses of the ninth chapter, which is verse 31, and verse 32. The Megillah reads, L'kayim es yimei ha-purim to fulfill the days, these days of Purim, bizmanim in their appropriate times. Ka'asher kiyam alehem Mordechai ha-Yehudi ve'ester ha-Malka, as they were established by Mordechai ha-Yehudi and Queen Esther. So we hear about Mordechai the Jew and Esther the Queen. And v'ka'asher kimu al-nafsham ve'al-zaram the way they accepted upon themselves. And it's not overtly clear who this is talking about, who accepted, but that's, you know, I'm just reading the Megillah on a very, very face, face uh, value. They accepted upon themselves, on, on their souls, on their progeny, on their future generations, these, the things of, of fasting and crying. That's the verse that precedes the verse we're going to look at now. The Gemara begins its analysis with the beginning of the next verse, which is the last pasuk, the last verse in the ninth chapter of Megillah Esther. And it says like this, Umamar Esther kiyam. And the words, or word of Esther was fulfilled. Divrei ha-purim the, 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 the things of these Purim, these, this, this Purim thing, 
and it was written in a book. So this verse does almost beg for an explanation. Like, what is the verse saying? The verse before speaks about the establishment of the festival by Mordechai HaYehudi and Esther HaMalka. And then verse 32 says, Umamar Esther, and the saying of Esther, Kiam was fulfilled with Divri HaPurim with the words or the things that surround this Purim. So why do we re-emphasize Umamar Esther Kiam, that they, there was the word of Esther that they fulfilled. It was Esther's words that was fulfilled. It was, it was Esther who established this. That, that's what the Pasuk seems to say. And the obvious question is, why? So that's, you know, presumably that's what the Gemara and the Tezayin Amid Beis begins to, to analyze. So the Gemara says like this. The Gemara says, Esther kiam. Esther's words, Esther's ask, if you will, her instructions, they fulfilled. And it was Esther's words that established and created Purim. So the Gemara says, tell me, only, only Esther? Maimer Esther in. It was Esther's words that made this happen. But Divri Hatsaymei Sloi, the words of, or the things of fasting, that, that didn't have an effect? Only Esther made this happen? Now, on, on the face value, this Gemara makes no sense. The Gemara makes no sense. And as the Marshal points out, that this, this Gemara is not talking about the literal meaning of the verse. This is a homily. This is a, a, a we're, we're, we're creating a drasha. We're, we're delving, we're investigating, we're, we're looking for kind of a subtext, not a straightforward meaning. Now, you might ask, what prompts the search for a subtext? Why, why would you even think there's a subtext? Why does it have to be a proverbial pun intended? Okay, that's a good question. So let's take a look at the Marsha. So the Marsha says, And the Gemara asks, So what, is, <laughs> what did the Gemara think? What was the initial supposition of the Gemara? What did the Gemara ask? And what did the Gemara respond? So Marsha says like this, If we are to read this verse in its straightforward or simple iteration. The literal meaning is that Maimer Esther, that it was the word of Esther that, uh, that the sages fulfilled. What was the word of Esther? Hainu. This is... Oh, I can't read these small tiny words. Ma'amora l'chachomim. It was her words to the sages... She said to the sages, please, you're not going to leave me out to dry. You're going to, make, you're going to make this Purim thing happen for me, won't you? So because Esther kind of pressured or pleaded with the sages, they said, yes, Esther, we will do this for you. That's the literal meaning. What does that even mean? What, so so, uh, so she's, she was a queen so she could pressure the sages into uh, making religious enactments? What, what, what does that mean? Either this is the will of God, so the sages will know about it, or it's not. Esther was powerful, so she, she pushed them around. 
what, what, what is the simple pshat? Now, <laughs> this is not what the Gemara's teaching is, but I just think it's a good idea for us to know, understand the simple pshat before we understand how the Gemara is adding a deeper dimension here. So let, let's go to Rashi, because Rashi's are, you know, that's, that's always the simplest pshat. So Rashi says like this. Rashi says, Esther biksha me'et chachme hador lekava. It was Esther who made the request from the sages, please establish this. Furthermore, she said, not only establish a holiday called Purim, but lichtov sefer zeh im I need you to write this into the books of scripture. And that's the meaning. That's the meaning it's, it was written into the book, meaning it's incorporated into our Jewish Bible. Now, if you're getting your back up and saying, oh, what, what, what? Esther said, can you please make this part of the Bible? What is that, a joke? If it's Bible, it's God's Word. If, if it's not God's Word, how does it become Bible just because Esther asked her to do that? What, like, what even... What even does that mean? If Esther wouldn't have asked it, then, then it wouldn't be prophecy? How do we understand this? So in our, in our Megillah class, we're going to talk about this at greater length. But, but I, I did feel that it was important just to give, again, just some basic context, just to, to, to understand. So the Maharal of Prague says the following. He says, why does it say Maimer Esther? Esther wasn't the only one who asked for this. Mordechai asked for it too. Mordechai and Esther are a team. They work together. So the Maharal says that Esther Hoysa Malka, she was a queen. And the Kivan Malka, because she's a queen, which means she was like, like a ruling, she had ruling power. So they, were, they would listen to her. They, they, they said, oh, Right, of, of course. Now, I mean, now that you explained it, that you're the queen and you have power. But of course, of course it's from God. So, so what does that mean? The Maral says, no, no, no. It's not referring to the sages. It's referring to the people. Even though the sages of the generation had enacted Purim, and the sages who were prophetically inclined, they understood that this is the word of Hashem. And that these, these, this, this Megillah was written, it was authored with prophecy. But the people didn't get it. People said, well, you know, the sages, the rabbis, they're just trying to make our life more complicated. And they wouldn't necessarily listen. Efsher, maybe they wouldn't listen to Mordechai and Esther. Maybe if this was just a straightforward religious enactment, maybe they wouldn't have listened. And that's why, and that's why the Megillah says, Maimer Esther Kiyam. They fulfilled Esther's words. So according to Maharal of Prague, it's not referring to the sages. It's referring to the people. And that's a very profound distinction. I mean, that, that actually makes a little bit of sense. I just want to see if some questions over here. All right, Aaron, I'm going to only respond to your question because it's the first time I'm seeing you here, but generally speaking, let's try to limit questions to, to the subject matter. When we read the Megillah on Purim, the name that we shake the groggers and beat in the tables, 
Should one refrain from doing so? No, of course not. Oh, you want to know if you have to make noise if we say Haman's name tonight? No, no. <laughs> no, you don't have to. It's a good question. No, that's only a custom in the Beit HaKnesset, and that's part of the paradox of Purim, you know. You, you, you tell the people to come together in Shul and make it as large a crowd as possible, and make sure you bring the kids. Give all the kids noisemakers, and then you have to hear every single word. I know, it's a paradox. But <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of things in Yiddishkeit are paradoxical like that. But that's not the subject of our, of our, of our, of our class tonight. So I, I, I was thinking, when I learned this morale, so I was thinking, okay, I mean, what the morale essentially is saying is that the people embraced Purim because, because Esther got behind it. So it's godly, but people don't always embrace godly things. So uh, how did Hanukkah take off? There was no Malka or Melech to promote Hanukkah. That's, and it's a fair question. So I, I, I think there's a huge distinction between the two. And that is that the, the Jews who the Hashmonaim were talking to, the Jews who the Hashmonaim, the Kohenim who led the charge against the Seleucids or Syrian Greeks, the occupying force, these are very pious Jews. And the people who listened to them were also very pious. By the way, they were a minority, significantly, in a, in a minority. The majority of Jews was not excited about Hanukkah and not excited about the Hashmonaim. They were very happy to assimilate and live secular lives in the land of Israel, probably more than 50%. And there's no reason to assume that they necessarily embraced Hanukkah any more than they didn't embrace the cause of the Maccabees or the Hashmonaim. So, so how did Hanukkah get traction? Well, it was very simple. The children of these people either became Bali Tshuva and came back and joined the Jewish people, or they are long gone, long gone. So we all, meaning the Jewish people who are listening to this class now, who are still Jewish, whether you are very secular and was brought up in the most unaffiliated, the most uneducated, illiterate way, Jewish possible background, you can't go more than three or four generations before you find some very pious Jews who sacrificed everything to remain Jewish. And I'm absolutely certain of this because anybody who more than 100 years ago wasn't prepared to sacrifice, or maybe 150 years ago max, doesn't have Jewish progeny today. There is no continuity. There is no new generation. They've all intermarried and disappeared and assimilated. So Hanukkah, sure, we, we keep Hanukkah. We, we, all keeping Hanukkah, with a whole array and the whole background, we're all descended from pious Jews who, of course, embraced Hanukkah. But the time of Purim was different. Because the time of Purim, all of the Jewish people came home. All the Jewish people. Even the sophisticated Shushanites, they also came home. And everybody was involved. Everybody did tshuva. There were no secular Jews on Purim. Everybody who had eaten at Ahasuerus' feast now was fighting for their survival and recommitted themselves to a life of Yiddishkeit. So we're talking about the whole nation. That's a big difference. To get the whole nation to agree, you know, we're Jewish people. We don't agree on anything. To get everybody to commit, to get everybody to embrace, that's an extraordinary feat. Hanukkah is very different from Purim in this regard. And the fact that we did get everybody to embrace this, or just about everybody to embrace this. It's very significant. 
how did it happen? Like, like statistically, it doesn't add up. So the Maral says, ah, that's the point. Umamar Esther Kiyam. They, they were fulfilling Esther's word because Esther had the force of the monarchy behind her. Everybody has to pay taxes. Everybody's under the monarchy. So she, she was able to get this established. So that's how the Maral frames and explains the words of Rashi. And, you know, it, it, it actually starts to make a lot of sense. It's like, it's like a logical thing. Now, now you and I can understand it. Now, the Vilna Goan, very interestingly, he, he, he kind of takes a similar approach to the Maharal. He spells it out in a little more of a clear way. He says, Machmat tkifut shall Esther. It was Esther's strength. She was a very strong woman. Esther was not a weak person. She didn't just, Mordechai told her to be nameless and faceless and uh, melt into the background, so she did. Esther was a very, very brave, courageous, and brilliant woman. If you learn the Megillah, and you should. If you go through the classes that we have on Megillah's Esther, and you begin to understand who Esther was, it's like mind-blowing. This is amazing, genius. She's made of steel. The courage she had was simply off the charts. And the, and the same from being able to hold it together, extraordinary. So Esther was a very strong person. And he Tzivsa, she gave the command. She made this happen. And the people, even the people who wouldn't necessarily listen, they, they, they did listen. Why? Mepnei Shehi Malka. Because she's a queen. And you know, most, if not all of us, have no clue of what a monarchy really means. Some, some of us have lived under dictatorships. But a monarchy? It's a very, very powerful thing. You don't mess with the king or queen. A real monarchy. So Esther was a Malka. She really was the queen. She got this done. Now, the, the Manas Halevi, the Alkabats, says something really, really beautiful. And some more questions over here. Hoo-hoo. This chat is really lighting up, okay. Guys, you're like overloading me. Zalman, that's a very profound thing. So Zalman is saying, could it be because the Jews were exiled to 137 provinces when they saw that the queen keeping the Megillah, they adopted it. However, they would not have adopted it if an individual group kept it. So I, I, I'm reading your question out loud because it's a very profound thought and I want you to hold on to it. There, you'll see, actually, we're going we're gonna to talk about this soon, something very, very similar. Okay, so, so the Alkabats, he sweetens this. He adds a very sweet element to the Mimer Esther. He says this, he says, This verse wants to make known, wants to tell us, how much the people loved Esther. She was enormously popular. She was very much beloved to the Jewish people. How great she was. They said, Esther said this? I mean, if Esther said it, we have to do it. 
they knew that she sacrificed everything for them. They, they knew that, but, you know, naturally speaking, she could have saved herself. So Esther was, she was like this magical person to them. And they loved her with such intensity, and they were so in awe of her. So when it was her words, Ma'amoro Kiyemesapurim, yeah, that, that, that's how they embraced this. And that's how they said, if the Chalim say this is scripture, then it's scripture. V'nichtav b'sefer, k'day losses l'kiyem, so yes, it was written, and that's how, that's how the Alkabats, the Shlomo Alkabats puts it. So th- this is the background. This, this, this is the background. You know, I wanna, I'm going to share with you that Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Vardichev, in the Kedushas Levi, he says something very interesting. He says they would have celebrated this. How could they not celebrate it? It was, it was an unbelievable miracle. The Jewish people were literally threatened with extinction. This was a stunning turnaround. He says, yeah, but when was the real miracle? When was like, the real turnaround? It was on, it was on Pesach, on the 16th day of Nisan. So a lot of people would have celebrated on the anniversary when Haman, the archenemy of the Jewish people, was hanged. And I mean, from there, it was downhill. But Esther said, no, if that happens, Purim will be swallowed up by Pesach. Nobody will know about Purim. The miracle will be eclipsed by the celebration of Pesach. So Esther said to the sages, we, we all know, you know this is a divine event, you know that this is Hashem's intervention, you know that it has to become a part of Yiddishkeit, but the question was where? The question was how? And Esther, like, pressured the sages, she says, no, it has to be a festival on its own. It cannot become subsumed into something else, even though it wasn't actually the biggest miraculous anniversary. And, and therefore, Ma'amer Esther Kiyam. So that's, I mean, this, this, the, the, the Kedushas Levi's approach is, is in, in some ways much easier to accept because, no, this was going to be, it was going to be, the question is when it was going to be. In a way, it's harder to accept because he's saying that she pressured the sages and, and um, from, from the approach that we have from the Maharal or from, from the Alkabats, maybe even the Vilnagon, I mean, like, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. The sages were, they were on board. The question is how do you use the people? That's the question. All right, so this is the literal meaning. That's the meaning of Maimer Esther Kiyam. How did this come to be? Because Esther agreed. That's how it came to be. Say that. Okay, so what is the Gemara talking about? The Gemara says, Maimer Esther Kiyam, Divrat Tzemes. Loi, the words of the Tzemes that didn't make it happen? How would that make it happen? What does it even mean? What is the Gemara asking? What is, what is your, like, what, what's your problem, dude? What's your, what's, what's your issue? But the Gemara has a problem, so <laughs> we have to understand what. And like, this is like really surprising to me. I was learning this Gemara. I haven't learned this for years. This Gemara, like, and I was like, "What? Nobody says anything. No Rashi. No nobody. Only the Marsha. I couldn't find any other Mefarish on the Gemara. Really, it's like like astounding to me. So, what does the Marsha say? Marsha says like this. He says, on a literal level, what I explained is, that's the meaning of Maimer Estekim. So the Marsha says, but there's an issue here. The issue is that up until this last verse that's found in the ninth chapter, till this last verse, we don't hear about Maimer Esther. We hear about Esther writing. Esther writes. Vatichtev Esther. She's writing. Why does it say all of a sudden Esther's speaking? Why is she speaking now? Who is she speaking to? 
How many people would hear her if she would speak? She'd have to write. Her communication was written. And that's the way it's seen earlier in the Megillah. It says, And earlier we read, Esther. Esther sent a message to the sages. She said, I don't want to be forgotten. I'm, I'm not going to have any Jewish children who are going to grow up Jewish, so make sure the Jewish people remember me and what I did. So because of this, what is, what is the meaning of Maimer Esther? That's Vatichtev. So what's Maimer Esther? So the Maharsha learns a very, very interesting pshat. Very interesting pshat. The Maharsha's pshat is the Maimer Esther, who did Esther talk to? She couldn't talk to a nation. She didn't have YouTube channel. She couldn't address the nation. Anyway, nobody saw her. People didn't even know what she looked like. The chances are that, that when she entered the palace, she's hardly ever seen by anybody afterwards. Maybe from a distance, a tiny figure, people came to the crowd, or the king and queen came out. She, she wasn't, who, she didn't speak. Who'd she speak to? So she spoke to Hashverosh. That's who she spoke to. That's when, that's when she did some powerful speaking. It was to Hashverosh. And what did she say to Ahasuerus? She said, She demanded, she said, you need to do away with this Haman guy. He's a big, big, big problem. He's, he wants to kill me and my family. And Ahasuerus said, who wants to kill you? You know, the whole story. So, so she spoke up. The Marsha says, this is the question now. So in the Drash level, on the homily level, we're not saying that Esther established the holiday. That already says in, in, verse, in verse, 30, 30, verse 31. Verse 32 it says, Umaymer Esther Kim, who made this all happen? Obviously God made it happen. But in, on a literal level, wh- who was the most influential player? Who gets the most credit? Who gets the most credit? So the Marshal says, the Gemara says, so what do you mean? Esther gets the credit. She was the one who spoke to Ahasuerus. Twice to get rid of Haman, and then to get rid of the Gzeda. She, she did the speaking. Nobody else talked to Ahasuerus. Nobody else took the risk. And the Gemara's question back is, one second. So it was just Esther who gets the credit? Nobody else gets the credit? Nobody else did anything? Wasn't there Divri Tzoymais? Was, wasn't there this, this fasting and this praying, Divri Tzoymais? That was also something, no? It was more than just Esther who acted. The people acted. So that's the question of the Gemara. That's what's bothering the Gemara. And the Gemara's response, response is, and then I'm just going to learn the Gemara the way the Marshal learns it, and I'm going to tell you my, the challenge that I have and why I would like to suggest a slightly tweaked shot, at least according to what other Mepharshim are saying. I know there are no more other Mepharshim on the Gemara. Okay, give me time. So, the Gemara then reads, according to the Marshal, like this. Maimer Esther, Kiyam, Esther did it. She gets the credit. The credits do her. And the Divrat Seymes Lai. Amar Rabbi Yechanan. Rabbi Yechanan said, if you want to read this as a drash, as a homily, then you have to read it as one 
run on sentence. Don't make a, a division between the words end of Pasuk, end of verse 31, and then verse 32, a new idea, umaymer estekiyem, read it as divrei hatzomot v'zakostum umaymer estekiyem. It was the tshuva, it was the rallying around the, the cause and coming back to Hashem and Esther's work. That's what made it happen. So Esther ultimately is the one who acts, but she's carried on a wave of spiritual inspiration and blessing that comes from the nation. So Esther was great. And her leadership and her efficacy in getting rid of a terrible disaster came into partnership. The people prayed. The people were inspired. Mordechai, of course, rallied the people. He got them together. We don't even talk about Mordechai. Divri Hatzemis Vazakosim includes Mordechai. It's not just the people. They didn't just fast by themselves. That includes the whole effort, the whole spiritual effort. Mordechai and all the Jewish people, especially the Shushanites. And then Esther goes to the theater, so to speak. She's right in the center of the action. So that's where we talk about, that's where, where this all comes together, so to speak. And that's how it happens. So in other words, if you want to read it as a drash, then you have to read the whole thing straight through. This is the way the Masha, this is the way the Masha understands the Gemara. As the Masha says, as the Gemara answers, Umashani, the Gemara answers, the Kushta, yes indeed, the Tekenu, exa- exactly like that. The Ha, the Ha, Garmu. They both were the cause. This is a, what we call a joint effort. Vahamikra, Mechuber, Lamaila. This verse, verse 32, is a run-on of verse 31. Divrat, Seimis, Vizakosam, Umaymer, Esther, Kiyem. Okay, so that's, 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 this is a drash. It's a homily. It's a homily. How did this happen? How did, who brought the miracle about? What's the answer? The answer is everybody. Mordechai had his role to play. The Jewish people had their role to play. And Esther played her role. Had anybody not done what they had to do, it wouldn't have been a success. Esther would have failed. Chas v'shalom. That's the way the Masha reads the Gemara. So I have a really, really difficult time with this read. Because Esther did something literal and the people did something spiritual. It's two different things. It's like two different conversations. Is anybody not acknowledging that the words of prayer uh, made it happen? Of course it made it happen. It's just what it says in the verse before. It says, So obviously... I mean, the, the, the Megillah is the story. Read the Megillah in order. In order to know that the miracle happened after the people fasted. That was Esther's idea. Esther never said, oh, sure, no problem. I, I got this. She said, are you kidding? I should go there. I, I can't do that. And Mordechai said, really? You can't do that? You think you're going to save yourself? You'll be lost. And Esther says, wow, those are tough words. Hmm. Okay. Here's what, here's what I need you to do. Putting the pressure 
back on Mordechai. She says, I need you to gather the people together and I need you all to pray for me and you all to fast. And if you all pray and if you all fast, then, then something, something might happen. Then I have a chance. Then I can go. The, if that doesn't happen, forget about it. It's nothing to talk about. But, I mean, these are two different things. The people did their spiritual preparation and Esther is the person of the hour. She's the woman who made it happen. <laughs> I mean, Esther. I mean, but Derechateva. In naturally speaking, so, w- like, why why would you have to conflate that even? Why why would you want to think otherwise? Why shouldn't we think? I don't know. It just it just to me it 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 reads it reads very strange to me. So first of all, here's a, here's a thought. Here's a thought, and, that, and, that, and it's not Chassidish all my thoughts. I'm just I'm going to give you the sources for everything, but tell you how I like kind of kind of put it together. So the thought is this, the Ma'am Loyes, he quotes the, the Tirat Kesef and the Tsuryakov, and he quotes them as saying like this. He says, when Esther wanted this to be written, so we have a remez, she said, Ksozod Basefer, there's a remez, there's a hint in the actual Sefer Torah. A hint in the Sefer Torah. What's the hint? Where is Esther alluded to? So, okay, we know the Gemara told us that the Pasuk Anochi Haster, Aster, and Mordor. There are, you know, ways to find Mordechai and Esther in the Torah. But where is there a, an allusion in the Torah to writing a Megillah, to creating an actual book of prophetic scripture, and that this becomes a holiday for the Jewish people? Where, where is that? And especially where is that that this Megillah becomes a book, takes its place, in the pantheon of biblical books. So this, uh, the Tiris Yaakov and the Kesev and the Tzur Yaakov, again, I'm citing it, I don't have those swar, I'm citing it from the Mamluyas. He says, in the Torah, about the battle of Amalek, it says, Ketov Zot Zikaron Basefer. Write this as a memory in the book. This is the Battle of Amalek. By the way, parenthetically, the mitzvah of remembering Amalek is a mitzvah that has to be carried out verbally. Yet, it can't simply be verbalization, like, for example, the reading of the Shema, which doesn't have to be read from anything. You can say the Shema by heart. The recitation or verbalization of words to sanctify Shabbat upon its arrival and its exit, Kiddush and Havdalah. You don't have to read from a Siddur. You don't have to read from a scroll. You can, you can recite the Kiddush by heart. You don't even have to recite the formula of Kiddush. You have to use your words to sanctify and designate the holiness of this day, to make a demarcation. But when it comes to a Amalek, it actually isn't enough to simply say the words. We have to read it from a Sefer Torah. And that's why once a year, a special Sefer Torah is taken out in every synagogue in the world, and it's always done on the Shabbat before Purim, because Purim is seen as an extension of the battle against Amalek. Amalek sought to destroy us in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. The next time we lock horns, a second time in the days of Moshe Rabbeinu and Yoshua. The next event shows up with the great-great-grandfather, Mordechai and Esther, Shaul HaMelech, and then we have the story of Purim. These are the four theaters of war or conflict with Amalek. 
And it says, Ksov Zot Zikoron Basefer. It says, write it in a book. So our, our rabbis say, we, we kind of derive from this, if it's to be written in a book, that you have to read it from the book. And that's the origin of the idea that this mitzvah can't simply be fulfilled by verbalization, but it has to be verbalization in the form of reading from a Sefer Torah. So he says, the word basefer becomes a remez. It alludes, it kind of winks to the concept of the Megillah. Why? So first of all, he says, she has And I refer you to the last class, last episode on the Gemara that I gave a year ago. And I was very emotional. I, I went back, I said, I'm screaming so much, but I was really upset about this ridiculous Zoom Megillah reading. So that I was like very, very agitated about that. You forgive me for my, my, my frustration. But that's what we talked about. That this is like a, it's a sacred event. It's not it's a little book that you're reading. It's not, it's not an electronic simulation. It has to be like a Sefer Torah. We use the same halachot. We use the, that's what the last class was about. That's, that's what we left off in the Gemara Prime. So it's written in a book. Now, here, so he says something absolutely phenomenal. Because Queen Esther sacrificed her life, she didn't know the end of the story. She didn't know how this was going to work out. She knew that the last time the queen got on the king's nerves, she had her head quickly removed from her body. Nobody wants to have their head and torso separated. <laughs> but Esther knew. He wasn't, he wasn't bluffing this crazy man, Ahasuerus. He did that to the last queen. He had her killed for something far less aggressive, far less offensive. <laughs> she just wouldn't come and, you know, and, and, and parade uh, in, in a modest way. She'd try to keep her own dignity. Imagine that. The queen wanted to have a little dignity. Here Esther's demanding. Ahasuerus was part of this. If you go back, uh, maybe 20 episodes ago, we, we read about Ahasuerus. He's a bad man. He's a real anti-Semite. He's very happy to give Haman the ring and have him sign the order into law. So Esther really risked her life. And by going willingly to Ahasuerus, Esther knew that she had sealed her fate and she could never, ever return to her true husband, which is Mordechai. So she really put herself in danger. She sacrificed herself. And that, they taught, is why the Megillah is called Megillah's Esther. Not Megillah's Mordechai Esther, Megillah's Esther. Kemoy Moshe, like Moshe Rabbeinu. That it says about Moshe Rabbeinu, Shemosar Nafshay al Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu sacrificed his life over the Torah. He said, save the Jewish people or erase me from the Torah. He sacrificed his life for the Torah. So that's why it's called Torah at Moshe. Torah at Moshe, Megillah at Esther. And, and they say, Kach Gorma Esther is Divrei HaPurim. That's how Esther caused Purim to happen. How? With Mesiris Nefesh. With utter, absolute dedication. With self-sacrifice. Now, if we take the words 
of the Tiras Kesef and the Tzur Yaakov. And we go back, let's go back to the Marsha. Say, okay, okay, Rabbi Marsha, you're telling me Esther did her part and they did their part. But my question, of course, was Esther's part is quite literal and they're doing the spiritual stuff. I, I understand there's a link and a connection, but this is a, who did this, who made it happen? And the answer is Esther. But the way they're viewing it, Esther's going to the king was an act of Mesiris Nefesh. It's like a new, a new understanding in Esther. Do you know why the miracle happened? Because Esther was Mesir Nefesh. Because Esther sacrificed herself. She caused the miracle. Her personal sacrifice was as meaningful as the sacrifice of the nation. They prayed. They fasted. She sacrificed her life. When a Yid devotes his or herself to Hashem, that brings miracles. The people brought that miracles through tshuva. Esther played a major role. She wasn't just a person who carried out the technical side of things. She was also a major contributor on a spiritual level. And if we take this approach of the Tiras Yaakov, of the Tiras Kesef and the Tzur Yaakov, and I think we should, and we read the Marsha the way they explain Umaymer Esther, Oh, all of a sudden it makes a lot of sense. So, again, we don't have, the, they're not talking about the Gemara. They say what they say in Pshat on the Megillah. But I, I would like to humbly suggest that if you, if you have their understanding, the way these great Chachamim, the way they explain the words of the Megillah, and then you kind of frame that with the Marsha's words, then it actually, it's very sweet. It makes a lot of sense. That's, that's, what, I'm, that's what I'm thinking. Remember, these are not my ideas, but I'm just kind of collating them or arranging them. Okay, that's, so that's number one. Then there's something else. Then there's, then there's another, another element in this. And it goes like this. According to the Korban Mincha, he says, Maimar Esther, he actually argues, he argues with uh, the Marshal. The Korban Mincha says, no, no. It's not the words that Esther said to Achashverosh. It's Esther's loyalty to serving Hashem. Which words? She says, you know what made it all happen? She told the king about the plot of Big Son and Seresh in Mordechai's name. She didn't take credit herself. That's what caused Kiem Divri Apurva I mean, the whole plot revolves around the business that on that night the king said, Mordechai saved my life? And what has been done? Nothing? Well, he, sh- he should be rewarded. As we learned about it, I really recommend you go back to watch the previous class explaining that, that hell night and what happened there. So the Mikan Samcha Yeshuasa, that's where they're their, their Yeshua, their salvation came from. That's how we have Nichtav B'Sefer, because she wrote it not in the Megillah. The Korban Mincha says, read the words here, Maimar Esther Kim Divrei Apulam V'Nichtav B'Sefer, meaning in Achashverosh's book, in the Royal Chronicles, in the history books, so to speak. So the Achashverosh had those chronicles read to him, and then... That's where everything all of a sudden began to unfold. Totally different approach. 
Now, if we learn the Marsha the way the Tiras Yaakov, the way the Tiras Kesev and Sir Yaakov learn it, the, what she said to Achshverosh was a much greater act of sacrifice. But this is a totally different take on it. This is, on a very literal level, Esther, she literally made it happen. Why? Why? Because she was self-effacing and she said, I'm going to give her credit where credit's due. How do we know that? How do we, how do we know that? I mean, and, and anyway, didn't Mordechai tell her to do that? So if Mordechai told us to do that, shouldn't Mordechai get the credit for having that foresight? The answer is no. Because, quite fascinatingly, I found that the final entry in one of the books of Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai the Chido on the scripture which is called Chaimas Anoch, in the very last entry of Chaimas Anoch on Megillus Esther, he says something quite fascinating. He quotes Rabbi Yonason Ebeshitz, the great leader of the Jewish community in Frankfurt and Altona, who wrote a book of his sermons called Yaris Devash, unbelievably brilliant dissertations. And there are a number of dissertations on Purim and the Megillah and the Yaris Devash. And the Yaris Devash says, yes, a simple question. He said, why didn't Achashverosh remunerate Mordechai? Why didn't he pay him back? Kings don't like to be indebted. And a regular person may not have the wherewithal, but the king lacks nothing. So if somebody saved his life, he should have rewarded him. Anyway, it would be good for the king. He, he, would, sh he would show a lesson. This was bad for him. Here's somebody saved his life and he wasn't rewarded. So what do people say? Oh, loyalty is invalued. So they won't be loyal. It, it actually makes no sense that Achashverosh didn't do it. And he became very, very nervous about this. He said, aha, that's what this is about. Haman is plotting against me. Esther is plotting against me. And nobody wants to tell me because I'm not loyal to people. And I don't appreciate their loyalty. I better reward Mordechai. Why wouldn't he have rewarded him right away? He was a very smart guy. He was a wily fellow. So the Bionison says an unbelievable Chiddush. He says, the Mordechai told Esther, don't mention my name. Leave me out of this. It's not good for the king to know that you're talking to me. He could be suspicious. I mean, after all, Mordechai and Esther were married. Like, he, he could accuse you of infidelity of who knows what. He can't know we have this relationship, that we're still in touch. So Esther, this time, didn't listen to Mordechai. Esther, she did what she thought was right. She said, I can't take credit for something that I didn't do. Mordechai did it. Mordechai brought the information. He deserves the credit. But she said to her husband, Mordechai doesn't know I'm telling you. So don't say anything to him because you put me in a bad place. So the king said, all right, no problem. So somebody told you and you told me, but he knew who that somebody was. But because Esther said to him, she don't want to get in trouble, she wants Mordechai to be upset with her, she said, don't, don't say anything, but I'm just letting you know Mordechai did it. And that's how it was written. In other words, this was a tiny little nuance. Who gets the credit for that tiny nuance? Esther does. Esther does. And this is what the Mishnah tells us. One who says something in the name of 
the original author? Nevi ge'ula le'olam. You bring redemption to the world. It's very powerful. You know, people hammer me sometimes. Why do you have all these books over here? Okay, just like tell us what you want to say. I'm hoping to bring ge'ula le'olam. I didn't make that up. Here's the books. <laughs> I'm telling you straight from the Sefer. Hopefully that brings Mugula. And this is the meaning of Maimer Esther Omro. The Maimer Esther. The Maimer Esther that she put it in Mordecai's name. Even though he didn't want it to be. That brought the Gula. And if you'll say, says the Chido, how do we know she Mordechai Rotza? How do you know Mordechai didn't want? Why was it written in a book? Why wasn't it acted upon? It was merely recorded for a future date, but he didn't reward him right away. Why? Because Mordechai didn't want his name there. So she said to her husband, Shh, I'm just letting you know, saving your life, we should record it. It was Mordechai. But he doesn't know. He doesn't know that I'm telling you who it was. And therefore we see that that's why he wasn't repaid. If he was repaid, what would he, if he would have had nothing. A few dollars, some gold and silver. What, would that, what value would that have when the Jewish people were in trouble? But this way, the king was indebted to Mordechai. And that's where the Geula came from. So this is phenomenal. I mean, this is, this is a totally different take. Now, it doesn't, this doesn't fit with the Masha's words. It doesn't fit with the Masha's words. But then we could say like this. So one second. You're telling me that Esther gets the credit because she did the right thing. She didn't plagiarize. She said, If Mordechai gets the credit, I have to get the credit. And what, then the Jewish people's fasting was nothing? That one act of subservience, that one act of devotion, that one act of death, that's what did the whole thing? And, and I mean, because it's all about a spiritual thing here. She didn't risk a life when she told the mar- on the king. On the contrary, the king was very happy with her. So the Gemara comes back and says, no, 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 no. It wasn't just that. Indeed, it was, it was that, that, that bigger picture. So this is another way. This, is, this would be a totally different way if, if, we, if we use the, the words of the Chidah and the words of the Karben Mincha to read, this is a nupshat in the Gemara. I, uh, again, I, I, I'm a little bit careful because the Masha doesn't say, Masha clearly doesn't say this, but that's the way they learn pshat in the Pasuk. And it's not simple pshat. It's not what Rashi says. So if, if you learn the Gemara that way, it's a totally different way of learning the Gemara, but also, I think, a way that, that, that makes, makes good sense. Now here's something within this. Quite fascinating. A third, a third approach to this Gemara. Reb Moshe David Vali, who was an Italian Kabbalist and, and Torah scholar, who wrote a whole compendium on, on the entirety of the Tanakh. His, his, his student in Kabbalah is much more famous. His student in Kabbalah is um, known as Ramchal, Reb Moshe Chaim Lutzato. So his student is very famous, but Moshe David Vali is not very famous. Anyway, he was, he's... Um, he was an 18th century sage, born at the end of the 17th century. And he says some phenomenal things. A lot of his things weren't printed until recently. He says something that Zalman, or maybe not Zalman, the other guy, uh, let me go back. He just talked about saying things in people's names. 
Was Zalman or Aaron? Yeah, it was Zalman. Zalman of Skippy's YouTube said that the Jewish people were exiled. Maybe it was because the queen was keeping the Megillah. That's why they adopted it. I told you. Hold that thought. Okay. So... So Ramesha David Vali says something incredible. He says, Esther was a queen. It's a queen. And Esther didn't know from deprivation. She's a queen. She lived in a lap of luxury. She was mifuneket, anuga. So everything was pleasure, everything was beautiful, you know, all silk and satin. And she accepted upon herself to fast. That was a big deal. And she said, when the people saw that Esther, in the lap of luxury, that she was going to fast, they said, if she could fast, we could fast too. In other words, she actually inspired their fasting. That's what Ramesh Vali says. So when you look at Ramesh David Vali's approach, it's, it's about Esther fasting. So the Gemara's response then would be, what do you mean, only Esther fasting? Everybody else fasted. And the answer would be, yes. Everybody's fasting, which was inspired by Esther's fasting. So it's a little different than what Zalman said. It's not that they followed the Megillah because they were inspired by Esther, but they were inspired to fast because of Esther. They said, if she can fast, we can fast. So it's a very different approach. Very different, but I, I think very sweet, very geschmack. Now there's a, another Italian uh, commentary lives in the year Shin Chafhei. It's going back about uh, 460 years ago. His name was Rabbi Zechariah ben Yehoshua. Rabbi Zechariah ben Yehoshua ibn Saruk. So he says there is an approach that suggests that the Divri Tsoimais here are not referring to the three-day fast, but referring to the Tanit that we call today Tanit Esther. And if you take Rabbi Zechariah's approach, Ibn Saruk's approach, he's saying Esther got the credit because of what she said. Whether you follow the Marsha's approach or the Chidah's approach, or the Bias Nebuchadnezzar's, whichever, whichever words you want to say. So the Gemara would be asking, one second, only the words she said and not the fasting she did? So the Gemara says, no, Esther's words and Esther's fasting. Only Esther's fasting. So this is Givaldic. Now, what I'm going to share with you now is a snippet, a snippet of something I taught, I mean, maybe last year or maybe two years ago, in our Custom and Convention series, I, I taught, the last class I taught, I think, was called A Taste of Hunger. And I strongly recommend, if this intrigues you, going back to, to watch that class. It's, it's about an hour and a half, and it's a phenomenal stuff. But basically, there is a huge chiddush, a huge novelty from the Rebbe that the Rebbe, in his own words, came upon on Purim 1970. And, and, I, and I know that I became, he came upon this because there's a letter. It's printed in the back of Lakutus Sifis, volume 6. It's on page 371. 
The letter is dated the 11th of Adashenim, which was Tainus Esther, Nidche, the push of Tainus Esther. And the Rebbe talks about why it's called Tainus Esther. There's a whole note as to why it's called Tainus Esther, a whole note packed with, with different suggestions. At the end of this letter, the Rebbe penned in the following words. The letter wasn't sent out, and there's been something new. The Rebbe said, Akav the letter was delayed. I've been thinking about this. Now, when the Fabrengen of Purim, this letter was sent after Purim. I listened to the tape. In the Fabrengen of Purim, the Rebbe says this was bothering me. I was thinking about it. And then I realized the answer is simple. And the Rebbe says, a huge chiddush here. Because the big question is, why is that Tanit called Tanit Esther? It's not the three-day fast that Esther ordained. It's not about Esther at all. And in a word, the Rebbe says, Yeshleimer, that the reason it's called Tainus Esther, Bepashtos. Kivan, Shezeu Tainus, Shabay Nikalu, Laamoid al Nafsham. They went to battle. If they went to battle, Hare Kolt, Sichem Lamid al Nafsham. Anybody who has to defend himself, in Rashoyim, you can't fast, you go to war. All the soldiers went to, Yom, to the battlefield in Yom Kippur, they all ate. Anybody who wouldn't eat would be doing a sin. And it was men, women, and children. Everybody was involved in this battle. There was only one Jew. One Jew who was not involved in any battle at all. She didn't wield a sword or a cudgel. Who was that? Esther. In other words, she fasted on behalf of the whole nation. That's why it's called Tainus Esther. So if you take, if you take the Rebbe's, Rebbe's Chiddush, it's a huge chiddush, and again, if, 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 it's, if this sounds like like, like what, go back watch the Taste of Hunger and Customs and Conventions, and you, you will. You, it, I really, it's a it's a very long and, and detailed, beautiful concept. Very, it's like there's a lot of moving pieces. But anyway, there's a third way to learn this Gemara. I think would be if you take Ibn Saruk's approach. Ibn Saruk's approach is it's all about Esther. It's actually all about Esther. And the question is, is it Esther's words? Say you want to follow the Marsha, the sacrifice. Like the Marsha, as we explained it through the Tirat Kesef and the Tsuryakov. Or, or if you want to follow the approach of Yerian's neighbor, so the Chidah and the Minchas whichever, whichever approach you want to take, it wasn't, wasn't just her words, it was also her fasting. So in the end, we now have a beautiful understanding. There's just a few words in the Gemara. We have a beautiful understanding of a profile of leadership, whether Esther's leadership was such that it was her, her dedication, her devotion, her sacrifice, along with the peoples that made this happen, or it was actually all about Esther because she inspired them to fast or because she Tucker fasted. She was the one who fasted and the one who spoke. So in the end, Esther is the single most powerful force in bringing Hashem's miracles to light. So that's the, where credit is due. That's the where credit is due. No, you don't fast after, the last class was called a taste of hunger. Yeah, we spoke of who fasted on Purim. Only yes, they will fast, correct, yeah. Okay, so now we'll go a little further in the Gemara, because I promised you that where credit is due, is not only going to focus on Esther, 
Now, unfortunately, Mordechai didn't get all the credit that was due. Says the Gemara, we go now into the next chapter, into chapter 10, in the third verse of chapter 10, which is actually the last verse of the entire Megillah, and with this, the teaching of the sages on the Megillah ends, but we will be taking in the future Gemara classes themes, a theme from the end of the Megillah. But this is where the last, the last time, the last verses of the Megillah are, are looked at. The very last verse is, Ki he was the viceroy for the king, most powerful monarch in the world at the time. And he was Ratsui, he was great for the Jews. He was accepted by most of his brothers. Most of his brothers. So the Megillah, the Gemara says, hmm. And he's So the Gemara asks, one second. The Gemara now zeroes in on the fact that it says, Reivechov. Says the Gemara, Reivechov. Veloy lecholechov. For most of his brothers, but not all his brothers. Who doesn't like Mordechai? Who wouldn't give Mordechai credit? Gemara says, Melame, this verse teaches you, Shapirush Mimenu Miktsas Sanhedrin, that some of the Sanhedrin separated from Mordechai. They separated from Mordechai. Why? What's going on over here? So, first of all, how do we even know this is the Sanhedrin? How do we even know that? And before the question of how do we know that, why would the Megillah tell us that Mordechai wasn't appreciated by everybody? Like, really? Do we need to know that? That there were some people who wouldn't appreciate, they didn't give credit where credit is due, they didn't revere the great Rebbe Mordechai, who's compared in the Medrash to Moshe Rabbeinu? Why would the Megillah tell us something disparaging about Mordechai? So the Divrei Shaul asks exactly this question. And the Divri Shal gives a very interesting answer. He says, when a person becomes very famous and great, there's usually a breakdown in certain relationships. Certain relationships don't stay the way they were before. And there's two reasons. There's two reasons why this can happen. One is that the person who achieves great prominence, he, he looks at himself in a different way. He looks down or disdainfully at, you know, people who are not on his level. So, he doesn't, he doesn't kind of treat them the same way anymore. If you will, he is the one who chooses no longer to associate with them. Now he's a big man. And then there's another possibility where a person remains humble. He treats his friends in, with the same love and the same concern and the same care. But sometimes... Some of those people don't treat him nicely. Why? It's called jealousy. There is always people who are jealous of somebody else's success. So they were jealous of him. And the, Megillah wants us to know that Mordechai, if he wasn't popular, it wasn't because Mordechai. Mordechai was the humblest of people. Remember, he's likened to Meshra There were people who were jealous of him. 
They went away from him. He didn't go away from them. And in this way, the Divrei Shol kind of says, on the contrary, this is something beautiful about Mordechai. But, but we're talking about Sanhedrin here. So first of all, I don't even know what Sanhedrin is. So the Marshal comments on this. The Marshal says, His brothers, his peers, Shohoyu, he was Miklal Anche Knesset We don't know of Mordechai's brothers. We never heard of Mordechai's brothers before. We never heard, we don't know, till today we don't know that he had any brothers. We hear about his parents, we hear about his ancestors, we don't hear about his brothers. Mind you, we don't hear about his children either. We don't know, we don't know about his children. So, so all of a sudden, now the Megillah is talking about his brothers? Who, who are his brothers? But we do know from many places in the Tanakh is that Mordechai is a member of the Sanhedrin. So that would have to be. It would be on a proverbial level. The Ksav Sofer quotes a teaching in the name of his father, the Khatam Sofer. And he says, he says his father asked a question. He said, like, what do you mean they... they disassociated. Why would they do that? We're going to see because they felt that he didn't devote his time to Torah. He wasn't devoting his time to Torah as much. Yeah, but he was saving the Jewish people. So the Hassam Sofer says they made this calculation. They said, so why is it that Hashem put him in that position? Probably because Hashem had to choose somebody to lead the Jewish people in a time when lives were threatened. He chose him because his Torah wasn't so valuable. He left the other Sanhedrin. They should spend time focused on Torah. He chose him. He says, you know, you'll do that position in life. So it was a different calling. It's a different calling. So the Sanhedrin said, aha. So if Torah is not his thing, our thing is Torah. Our thing is Torah. So we're not into the other things. It's all beautiful. It's all fantastic. It's all wonderful. But that's not what we're into. We're into Torah. And if Hashem chose Mordechai, so, so they looked at him differently. They looked at him differently. He, they didn't, he wasn't their go-to person when he came to Torah. It's still hard, it's like painful almost, and hard to understand. But this is the, this is the way he explains it. And, and here, I think, really is um, the most important point of all. I think the most important. This is a beautiful teaching, again, from Yenis and Ebeshitz. This is also found in the Aras Dvash. And unfortunately, I could not find it in the actual Yaris Dvash. I'm quoting it from... Where, from uh, other sources that quote the Yaris Dvash, I couldn't. I looked today. I couldn't find it. I don't know why. I couldn't find this Yaris Dvash. So he says like this. How do we know it's Sanhedrin that's separated from them? Maybe it was jealous people. Maybe Echav means the Jewish people. I mean, so we don't, it wasn't his actual brother. So, so it's the Jewish people. Aren't Kol Yisrael Chavedim? Aren't Kol Yisrael Achim? Why does it have to be Sanhedrin? This is an amazing thing. He says, when you have a majority and a minority, the minority is always bottled, is always nullified before the majority. For example, in the laws of, of Kashros, if you have non-kosher food, a very minute, small volume, like, like 1 60th, that gets mixed into a large volume of kosher food, you can eat the entire mixture. So, for example, if you have 60 gallons of whatever it is, and then something fell in there, and it was the perfect storm. It was boiling hot, and it was being mixed, and now it's 61 gallons. 
So you're going to bottle whatever it is. You're going to be bottling not 60 gallons. You're going to sell 61 gallons. You're actually going to be making money on a non-kosher item, which, by the way, you're not allowed to do. You're not allowed to nullify something which is not kosher. But the point is, there is actually 61 bottles that were sold in the store the next day. Or if it's wine, volume of 200 times as much. There are different volumes, 100 times, 200 times, different volumes, for what, depending on what it is. But the point is, the point is this, the point is that whatever minute amount has become subsumed and overwhelmed by a larger amount, it doesn't exist anymore. So if there was any Jews who didn't appreciate the Rebbe, they didn't exist. They were not of import. They wouldn't be talked about. The Megillah doesn't talk about them. They would say, the Jewish people revered and honored Mordechai. Yeah, but there was one guy who didn't like Mordechai. He doesn't even register. But Sanhedrin's another story. Sanhedrin has great prominence. Sanhedrin doesn't, doesn't fade away. And we actually could see this in halacha because even when the halacha gets ruled like the majority, the minority opinion didn't disappear. The Mishnah is full of minority opinions. And not only the Mishnah is full of minority opinions, it says what Mashiach will come, that the halacha will be ruled, the ruling will change to Beishamai because the majority of sages will understand things of Beishamai. As the Rebbe once explained, when Mashiach will come, it will be Tchiyas HaMesim. It says Beishamai's understanding and his erudition was more profound than Beishilo. So we're going to have the greatest of every generation, they'll come to the conclusion of Beishamai. So the minority never really disappeared. It was always still there. It just wasn't acted on. So therefore, the Yadavash says, we, it must be the Sanhedrin. It has to be the Sanhedrin. And we can see that the Sanhedrin, they, they valued and appreciated, but somehow they didn't feel that same kindred feeling with Mordechai and uh, with Hashem's help. This will be the theme that we address in, in the next Gemara class. Thank you so much for joining tonight. Hashem should help us. Look and see if I have any questions to answer. No, no, let's uh, we'll, no, let's not. We're talking about the Sanhedrin. It's not, it's not Pasha. You can't just say we're jealous and justifying jealousy. Anyway, we're, we're going to talk about this. It's, it's, a, it's, it's actually a very, very, um, it's an intricate and, and difficult subject, but uh, that will be the focus in Mertz Hashem of, of our next episode. Again, thank you everybody for joining us this evening. May Hashem help us that as we are learning about Geula, the wonderful miracles of salvation and deliverance of yesteryear that we should merit in Mertz Hashem, Geula v'Yeshua, Ayudei Mashiach Tzedkeinu, in our time, Ubemheira, Ubiyameinu, Amen. Again, thank you. And Laila Tov, Agotanacht.